Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's get the latest from the situation in Israel now and the hundreds of Canadians who are still there. The government is moving to bringing them home on emergency flights. But let's get the details from Global National Senior Correspondent Mackenzie Gray, who's with us now. Good morning, Mackenzie. Hi, Sammy. So what is it, what does this entail? What's going on here? Well, yesterday uh, night, Melanie Jolie tweeted out that in the coming days, Canadian Armed Forces are going to work to get Canadians who are in Israel out of Tel Aviv. Now, we know that there are thousands, many thousands, who have uh, registered with the embassy there. But as they always caution in these situations, that, that is just uh, a voluntary program. So there's not a clear number of exactly how many Canadians uh, we know who want to be removed from Israel at this point in time. And, and it's important to point out, too, that Canadians can get out right now. We were crunching the math yesterday on the number of flights that we were able to get out of Ben Gurion Airport. About 50% of the flights that had been scheduled were able to get out. Now, Air Canada that had flights from Toronto and Montreal to Tel Aviv have canceled their flights. A bunch of U.S. airlines, too, most of the major ones have canceled. But there were flights that can get you to New York, Boston, Fort Lauderdale, and, of course, to most European destinations. It's expensive to get on those and tough to get there. But there is a way out of Israel right now. But to augment that for Canadians who are going to be there, uh, it looks like in the coming days the armed forces will be in there to try and get Do we know the numbers right now of Canadians who will need this assistance? No, we don't. So we're expecting that we're going to have more information today. There's likely going to be a technical briefing this morning in Ottawa and then kind of more of a formal announcement in terms of uh, how things are going to go. You know, the big question I'm looking at, though, Simi, is if there's any plans to get Canadians who are in Gaza out. Uh, We know that cumulatively between the West Bank and Gaza, there are 500 Canadians who have registered uh, with the Canadian government with Global Affairs who are in that area. Uh, you can get it's relatively difficult by all accounts from Canadians that we've spoken to on the ground in Israel to get out, but you can get out. You're in Gaza, you're stuck. Uh, and what actions the government are going to do to be able to get people, uh, Canadian citizens who are in Gaza, out of Gaza, that will be a much more difficult and tricky situation and what uh, for else, the government to handle. What else has the government had to say then about that situation in Israel right now? Well, not much more in terms of the evacuation process. Obviously, we heard from the Prime Minister uh, calling out Hamas for the terrorist actions they had uh, over Friday and into Saturday. Uh, but, you know, we should be hearing more from the Prime Minister in the coming days, and this will be the first time we're going to be hearing uh, from Melanie Jolie uh, speaking to all media outlets later today, likely, and likely to hear from Bill Blair to the Defence Minister in terms of the technical aspect of trying to get Canadians out of the area, and it'll be interesting to see what they do. They have been under a lot of pressure from different uh, Canadian citizens who are in Israel who've been saying, look, we haven't been able to get a hold of people at the embassy. It's been a bit of a chaotic situation on the ground. Uh, You know, for the most part, we haven't seen uh, a true diversion in terms of political opinion of what has happened on the ground uh, from the opposition parties, the NDP, the Bloc, and the Conservatives all kind of agreeing with the Prime Minister in terms of the approach they've taken uh, in terms of calling the situation out. Uh, But 
the the one different thing we have heard is the Conservatives in particular calling out the Prime Minister yesterday saying we need these flights to get people out of there uh, and we also need a clearer response from the embassy on the ground to make sure that Canadians who are in Israel have a clear understanding about what they need to do and what the direction from the government is. Right, okay. And so I know there's a lot of pressure to do this. Are other countries doing the same thing and evacuating their citizens like this? Yeah, we've seen uh, Poland be doing this as well, uh, Brazil. There have been a few countries that have done that. We saw it late yesterday to Germany announcing that. We haven't seen a firm uh, commitment from the Americans yet to be able to get people out. You know, I think in part, obviously it's a fluid situation, but, you know, when you think back to Afghanistan as an example, you know, the commercial aspect of the commercial flights being able to get people out of the area uh, was not the same. So, you know, there is an ability uh, for people to be able to get right out right now. But obviously, with a fluid situation where things are changing, uh, you know, if uh, Hezbollah starts to get involved, the situation could change very quickly. So obviously, the, the imperative is to get people who want to get out as quick as possible, uh, while there is an opportunity, which there is right now, for people to be able to get out of the situation. All right, Mackenzie, thank you so much for the update. Thanks, Emmy. We'll take you now to Ottawa, where Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie is filling us in on what the plans are to help Canadians get out of Israel in particular. So that is going on right now. Let's just have a listen. I would like to now speak directly to Canadians who are currently in the region. They're scared. It is a time of great uncertainty and of great anxiety. But I want you to know that we are here for you. We're working around the clock to provide you with the information you need and the support you're asking for. Our office in Tel Aviv and Ramallah are open. Our team is there and our team in Jordan, Egypt and Lebanon are also working around the clock to support you. We have surged the capacity in Ottawa to make sure that we're there to answer your calls and texts 24-7. If you haven't registered yet with Global Affairs, please do so now. You can do so on our website or by calling 613-996-8885. Si vous n'êtes pas encore inscrit auprès d'Affaires mondiales Canada, faites-le dès maintenant. Vous pouvez le faire sur notre site web ou encore en appelant le 613-996-8885. I know that this situation has been difficult and many of you want to return to your family, to home, and want to do so safely and we will help you. We'll begin the assisted departure of Canadians from Tel Aviv in the coming days by the end of the week with the help of aircraft from the Canadian Armed Forces. They will arrive in Tel Aviv and bring Canadians to Athens. My colleague Pablo Rodriguez and I have been working on the next steps from there. Together we have secured with Air Canada a plane and a crew to bring Canadians home from Athens. These flights will be available to Canadian citizens, their spouses, and their children, as well as to Canadian permanent residents, their spouses, and their children. Let me be clear, this includes dual nationals, because a Canadian is a Canadian is a Canadian. We're also working on additional options for those who cannot reach the airport in Tel Aviv, and I'll be able to take questions on this. Additional details will continue to be shared over the coming days. I will continue to share them publicly and will also communicate them directly to those who wish to receive the assistance. If you would like our help in leaving and have not registered yet with Global Affairs Canada, please do so now. 
This is how you will be able to get information on how to leave and we will share information directly with you once you're registered. Je vais maintenant prendre un peu de recul et faire le point sur l'état d'avancement de notre réponse diplomatique à cette crise. Au cours de la fin de semaine, j'ai parlé avec mes homologues d'Israël, de l'autorité palestinienne, de l'Égypte et également de la Jordanie, ainsi qu'avec la Maison-Blanche. Hier, j'ai parlé à nouveau avec mon homologue israélien, mon homologue jordanien et la Maison-Blanche, et j'ai également eu une conversation avec le ministre des Affaires étrangères de l'Arabie saoudite. J'ai réaffirmé la condamnation par le Canada de cette attaque terroriste, par le Hamas, et nous travaillons d'arrache-pied pour veiller à ce que le conflit ne s'étende pas à toute la région. Sur le plan consulaire, nous avions hier soir 4249 Canadiens enregistrés en Israël, 4760, pardon, 476 Canadiens enregistrés en Cisjordanie et à Gaza, et Affaires mondiales a répondu à près de 2000 demandes de renseignements. Finally, before I get to your questions, I would like to take a moment to speak about the situation in Gaza, where civilians are living amidst extremely difficult circumstances. The humanitarian situation in Gaza was dire before this weekend, and this will only deteriorate the situation further. As I said yesterday, this will get worse before it gets better. My heart breaks for the deaths we have seen and then share the anxiety about what will happen next. We urge all parties to respect international humanitarian law and to provide humanitarian access to Gaza. Canada will continue to support the humanitarian needs of the Palestinian civilians. Let me be clear, Israeli and Palestinian civilians deserve to live in peace and safety with their human rights, human, human rights respected and with dignity. And Canada will always work with this in mind. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. This is Mornings with Simi. Time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. All right, let's talk about this big, and I put that in air quotes, big health news that we heard about yesterday. Yeah, the federal and provincial government tried to make it sound like a big deal. It's a big number for most of us. A deal, province, federal government, Ottawa is going to provide BC with $1.2 billion dollars for health care. More, that is, more than they already do. Um, well, $1.2 billion is a big number until you look at it in detail and you realize it's not really a big deal at all for any number of reasons. And why is that? Well, BC, first of all, spends $29 billion a year on health care. 
And this 1.2 billion is spread over three years. They do that, right? They spread it over three years. So it sounds like a bigger number. It's about $400 million this year, coming year. Um, $400 million is about 1% of the BC uh, healthcare budget. It's less than the government will pay out next year in wage increases for people in the healthcare sector. So it's not a big amount of money. It, it's way short, Simi, of what the BC New Democrats were seeking from Ottawa. You remember that uh, National Conference on Healthcare Funding that we had here in Victoria when John Horgan was still premier of the province was looking for almost $4 billion a year. They're getting $400 million a year, so it's about 10% of the provincial wish list. Okay, so then why make such a big deal about this? Well, because, you know, both governments want to make it sound to the public like they're doing something. So they've targeted this money. Uh, they, they try to say, okay, well, yeah, it's not a huge amount across the board. Health Minister Federal uh, Holland said, it's not a panacea. Okay, well, thank you, Minister, for admitting it anyway. Um, but they've, they've targeted the money at improving a couple of things in the system. So there's some money for mental health and addictions, uh, new money there. Uh, so that will that's where that money will go. Ottawa likes to tie strings to this to make it look like they're doing more. Um, it's also going to address the um, balance in acute care between nurses and the number of patients they have to look at. So I see the nurses are saying that actually will help make a difference. That's a good thing. It's not like they're just going to waste the money. That's very important. Indigenous health, another one. But, you know, you think of the story that we're all covering, which is the number of ERs in the interior and in the north of the province that keep closing. What is it? Merit at 16 closures this year? Yeah. Um, it's not going to deal with that at all. It, it isn't gonna do much that I can see on the other announcement we had yesterday, which was Premier David Eby's town hall on expediting approval of credentials for foreign practitioners, nurses, doctors, and other professions. Again, there's a lot of work to be done on that. The There's a meeting in Charlottetown coming up where health ministers and that are going to talk about what can be done to uh, improve credentialing for doctors, like a single credential for all Canadian doctors. But we're not there yet, Simi. There's, this is a very slow process. And uh, one, I, I don't think anybody would ever want to describe $1.2 billion as a drop in the bucket but it's not as big a deal as the provincial health minister, Adrian Dix, and the federal health minister, Mark Holland, tried to make it sound yesterday. Right, because I was trying to figure this out. Like, well, what, they didn't even really specify which associations or which trades we're talking about here. Yeah, so that one's interesting because uh, the premier did a town hall yesterday in Surrey, uh, and it, it was sort of the last consultation before the NDP government brings in legislation, which we are expecting when the House sits next week, uh, re returns next week, and it will collectively, according to the Premier, increase, expedite, be more transparent, um, be fairer 
for foreign credentials. So we've talked a lot, Simi, about healthcare workers and credentials for doctors and nurses, but the Premier made it pretty clear yesterday this is going to be a lot more than that. They're talking about construction workers. They're talking about dentists, social workers. There's a whole bunch of areas that will be addressed by this 235 different categories in the province and 50 regulatory bodies. So, you know, a good intentions, yes, Simi, I think that's true. Long overdue, yes, that's true. But the real showpiece yesterday, the real education yesterday during the town hall was listening to people describe in detail what they've been through trying to get credentials here and it's a nightmare, and mark me down as a skeptic that they're going to be able to fix that as quickly as they suggest they will. Well, you kind of think that if it had been that easy, we would have done it before. Yeah, I know there was a dentist there who talked about, uh, what, taking her three years and $50,000 to get credentials to practice as a dentist in British Columbia, and she's still working as a dental assistant my favorite was the report of the doctor out of Hong Kong, who's a graduate, among other places, of the London School of Economics, who has to take an English test, an English proficiency test every year because it's taking so long to process oh, his man. credentials. And the point that was made is his English getting isn't getting any worse. Right. His English, I'm guessing, is probably better than mine's. <laughs> also, if he takes certainly it once, on medical issues, anyway. <laughs> if he takes it once, then you know they're proficient. Why do they need uh, to keep it, on taking it's, it? It's so simmy, so incredibly bureaucratic, so overlain with protective associations that don't really want to speed up approval of credentials bureaucracies at the federal and provincial level. I mean, again, there's no question good intentions, no question the premier wants to speed this up. He was very sympathetic yesterday. He kept saying to these people as they outlined their horror stories, thank you for your patience. Thank you for your patience. As I said, no lack of good intentions. But when you hear how these processes work, as I said, mark me down as a skeptic that they're going to be able to speed this up. All right, we're talking BC politics this morning with Vaughn Palmer, and a bit, I guess, a bit of an anniversary, Vaughn? The Green Party. So the fourth party in the legislature, the BC Conservatives, has been getting a lot of attention lately. Uh, the Greens, the third party in the legislature, are having an event in Victoria today. Party leaders, Sonia Firstenau, or deputy leader, MLA, nominated candidates for the Greens at the Victoria Hotel are marking the 40th anniversary of the founding of the B.C. Green Party, way back in 1983 in the fall. Uh, And here we go. The Greens are going to tell us all the wonderful things they've done over that time. (laughs) Um, They've had an impact, you know, a a significant one. Yeah, they have. Uh, The Conservatives are talking about what they're going to do, but the Greens can point to stuff that they've been pushing, uh, things they promoted, especially during that partnership with the NDP, from 2017 to 2020. Um, the one anniversary, by the way, Simi, that uh, Sonia know probably won't be marking today is the third anniversary of the NDP double-crossing them and tearing up the power-sharing agreement and calling a snap election when Firstenau had been leader of the party for all of about 48 hours. So 
Uh, that is a sore spot with the Greens, and they've been pretty hard on the government ever since. Yeah, I can understand why. Okay, and so, I mean, the, the fact that they're even still around uh, this yeah. long, and they've had continued success. They have, you know, um, BC United uh, supporters, people who voted BC Liberal in the past, uh, grumble an awful lot about vote splitting on the right. And I think it'll be a real phenomenon uh, where voters have to choose between BC United and uh, BC Conservatives. But the New Democrats have been dealing with this for a long time. They, uh, for a long time, have had little charts after the election showing claiming uh, their view that uh, the green vote comes mostly from the NDP side. And if it weren't for the Greens, uh, the NDP would have you believe they would have won some of those elections in the past. You can argue forever about vote splitting, but the fact is the New Democrats have been living with the Greens saying they're not good enough on environmental issues. Lately, the Greens have been hitting them pretty hard on the health care issue, so it's not out of the question that we may have some ridings in the next provincial election where the green vote uh, will be taking away from the NDP. And who knows, it might elect a green uh, alternative. It might elect a member of some other political party. It's been interesting, though, watching the Greens because they don't always take from the NDP when it comes to voters either, because they have taken in the past from the former yeah. B.C. Liberals. You know, I think that's true, and that's, it was especially true in the 2017 yes. B.C. election. You had a number of people who'd voted B.C. Liberal in the past who'd had enough of the Liberals on money laundering and the cost of housing and their staggeringly uh, controversial uh, way they were raising money with giant checks from corporations. And I think you're right, Simi, a number of disaffected liberal supporters went and voted green for the first time. And so it isn't just NDP. And, you know, I think uh, BC United or the Conservatives would say, they expect to benefit from people who voted NDP in the last and maybe change their mind. I mean, voters don't fit permanently all their lives into little compartments. You don't hear very many people now saying, well, I've always voted for that party. And my dad and my mom oh, always did. Nobody too, says that. I'm never going to vote for anybody else. <laughs> Doesn't happen as much as it used to. Yeah, it used to. You're right. But also, I would say that BC has a history of having smaller parties, whether it is we for a while there, we had, you know, a, a little BC, we have BC conservatives right now. We've got a little BC reform at one point. We had uh, a small Don't BC Socrates. Of Democratic Alliance, Simi. Oh, yes. Gordon Wilson's party. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> so, how could I possibly? So we do have this history of having these smaller parties. Yeah, we do. And we have a, a history, too, of every sort of periodically, every decade or so, the parties realign and break up and sometimes change their name and come back into the arena. As I said, the established parties, and especially their paid employees, and their leaders tend to grumble a great deal about the impact of new parties and fringe parties as they see them, and third and fourth parties. But, you know, I think there's a theory out there to be made that when you have more parties in the political arena advocating a variety of policies, it can have a positive impact on voter turnout. People um, who go, well, I see the established parties, they're all the same. 
they go looking for a party that's got stronger positions on, say, environmental issues or a party that has stronger uh, stands on social conservative issues. And they say, yeah, I got a party out there that I can vote for and they go and vote. So I'm not sure, you know, the parties, as I said, the established ones think new parties and fringe parties, as they call them, are just all bad news. But from a voter's point of view, greater choice is not necessarily bad news, even though it can lead to an election result you may not much like. Very true, Vaughn. Thank you. Bye-bye, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. How many drinks do you have per week? And be honest, because I'm not the doctor here, so, you know, we can talk about this. This has become a pretty hot topic since the Canadian Centre on Substance Abuse and Addiction put out their, let's say, revised alcohol recommendations. And boy, they are very different from what people are used to. Because Health Canada's guidelines say two drinks a day or 10 per week for women three a day for men, or max 15 a week for men. That is the Health Canada guideline for, you know, drinking, having alcohol. But now there's this Canadian Centre on Substance Abuse, and they are drastically changing that thinking. They say there is no safe level of alcohol consumption, and that it only brings health risks such as cancer, heart disease, and strokes. Yikes. Uh, Some people are not happy about that at all. We're going to chat about it now with Mark Hicken, who's a consultant to the BC wine and liquor industry, former liquor policy advisor to the government of BC and former wine lawyer as well. Mark, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me on, Simi. What did you think when you heard about those recommendations? Well, you know, we were honestly quite shocked because um, these new recommendations are really contrary to common sense. You know, we all have friends and family who've safely consumed in moderation throughout their lives and lived to a healthy old age. My my dad is, has, has done so for his whole life. He's 85 now. Um, decades of scientific research has shown that those who drink in moderation live about as long or a bit longer than those who don't drink at all. So it's contrary to, you know, most of the established science and it's contrary to common sense, frankly. Right. Let me allow me to just play devil's advocate for a second. People may live long lives, but not without health complications, though, Mark, right? That's the thing. It's the cost of the alcohol to the healthcare system. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, uh, you know, our group is uh, very concerned about um, creating, you know, workable public health policy that actually actually creates results. And the historic approach to that has been to focus on harmful consumption. And that has worked, actually. Um, you know, Statistics Canada reports the low, lowest levels of heavy drinking that they've ever seen. Um, uh, and I, we think that this new, um, you know, recommendation by CCSA is a mistake because it instead focuses on moderate consumption. Um, we think that's going to cause people to tune out of the messaging completely and it's going to erode confidence in public health messaging. Um, you know, generally, the level of risk um, associated with moderate alcohol consumption is incredibly low, and it's you know pretty comparable to the same the risks that we accept, you know, in everyday life. You know, driving to work, playing sports, things like that. Um, uh, there's always some level of risk. You know, when you get up each morning and, and leave the house, uh, you you accept that. Um, but this. These recommendations seem to proceed on the basis that any level of risk associated to alcohol is completely unacceptable. Are you concerned that that's right? Are you concerned that perhaps Health Canada will start looking seriously at this? 
Well, you know, so far, as you mentioned, Health Canada has not accepted or rejected uh, the guidelines. Um, you know, so we think that uh, that's the right approach. We don't think that these guidelines have, um, you know, are sensible. and We don't think that they have a proper basis in science. Uh, as I said, if you look at the overall all-cause mortality, moderate com- moderate alcohol consumption does not affect that. So we don't think that it's a proper approach. Uh, and we think that the risk analysis particularly that was used by CCSA is incorrect. Um, and that, you know, the Health Canada should use a broader perspective when it's looking at these things. Mark, do you think people actually do pay attention to this or are they just going to drink what they want to drink? Well, that's a good point because I think that so far... You know, messaging, as I said, has actually worked. And the approach has been to encourage people to not drink heavily if they choose to drink at all and to drink moderately. And that generally doesn't pose any significant risk to health overall. Um, But if you change the message to you shouldn't drink at all, and if you make it a one-size-fits-all message, I don't think that's productive. I think that what we need to do is, you know, it's every individual is different, and your risks associated with all kinds of illness, including cancer, are are different for each person, and it's you know based on a lot on lifestyle, genetics, diet, um, you know, and if you if each individual we think should educate themselves as to what the risks are, talk to your own family doctor, and then make decisions based on those you know personal. Right. Uh, circumstances. When this kind of health news is in the news and you see those headlines, does it impact consumption or sales of alcohol? Well, I think it it may not impact it immediately. Um, and I don't think we've seen a dramatic change in uh, consumption patterns in British Columbia right now. But I think that the big danger really is just that, you know, it causes a lot of unnecessary stress and fear for people when they think, you know, they want to come home from work and have a beer while they're watching the hockey game or have a glass of wine while they're having dinner. I don't think they should be worrying about something where the risks are just incredibly low. You know, it's sort of like going outside and walking in the sunshine. Sun exposure can also cause cancer as well, but it can also give you a lot of benefits too. So I think that we need to take a more holistic overall approach to this and not, um, you know, demonize something, especially when it's consumed moderately, that's that's not really on. Right. But you make a good point, though, is like, you know, people used to love sitting in the sun and tanning and people, a lot of people still do that, but not without sunscreen. Yeah. They have learned to do that. So are you concerned, yeah. like if it's a longer term message here, do you think, well, this is going to turn more people off alcohol in the long run? Well, we're not, you know, we are actually, we encourage people to, you know, look at your personal risks, look at your lifestyle, look at your your genetics, your family history and your diet. If you think that you, you talk to your family doctor, if you think that you have an increased risk of particular types of cancer, then, you know, maybe the right decision is you should either cut back on alcohol or not drink at all. We think that that's the right way to do it. But we don't think that a, an approach that tells all Canadians that you shouldn't be drinking at all or you should be drinking only in such low levels that people are going to ignore it. We don't think that that's helpful at all from a public health perspective. Interesting. Mark, thank you so much for your time. 
You're very welcome, Simi. Appreciate that. Mark Hicken is a consultant to the BC wine and liquor industry and former liquor policy advisor, actually, to the BC government, former wine lawyer, too, talking about these recommendations that have come out. Uh, This is from the Canadian Centre on Substance Abuse and Addiction, and they're proposing really strict limitations on alcohol consumption. They say there are no benefits to even moderate drinking. And that goes completely in the face of what Health Canada has recommended since 2011, where they said, you know what? Yeah, women can have a max of 10 drinks a week. Men can have a max of 15 drinks a week. And what the industry is saying, well, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Everybody is different. People should be able to have a few drinks moderately. They can they can recognize that. If you've got health concerns, you can cut back yourself. Now, where do you weigh in on this? Simi at cknw.com. And I do wonder how honest people are, like with ourselves, with even your doctor when they ask you about how much alcohol you consume in a week. This is Mornings with Simi. Cross-border shopping used to be a huge deal, but you know, with the fluctuation in the Canadian dollar, it became harder and harder to find the deal. But apparently it is still possible to find those deals. Our Scott Shunts is with us now because he talked to somebody who apparently does this all the time. Yeah, absolutely. I thought same thing, that there's no value in doing it anymore, but apparently that's not the case. Brandy Dustin is a Canadian who lives uh, east of the Kootenays, and she does all all of her grocery shopping uh, across the border to 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 save money, and apparently she saves quite a bit of money doing it, Simi. So I spoke with her about this, and I just asked her, like, how often are are you going down to to do this cross border shopping? Um, during COVID, obviously, I shopped in Canada. Sure. Yes, at the moment, I am buying all of my groceries in the States. Okay, and tell us how much money you figure you save by doing that. I'm saving on average at least $80 a shopping trip. My last few, I'm saving closer to $100. And it seems that I'm saving around $300 a month. Wow. Okay. And that's a big difference. Like, talk to me about how much difference that makes in your monthly budget. Oh, it's it's huge. It allows us to take that money and pay down some debt, put it away for holidays that, you know, have, are hard to do right now because money is so tight. So it's allowing us to actually be able to save money. Um. It, yeah, it just kind of puts money back in our pocket to be able to enjoy life and yeah. down some of the debt and give, give us a little more breathing room than we would have otherwise. So you mentioned like, eight, you know, maybe $80 a shopping trip, 300 a month. So how often do you find that you're going across the border to, to do this? I tend to go down at least once a week for, for groceries. And sometimes I have to run down for other stuff. So when I'm down there, I'll stop and pop in and maybe just grab a few items to put in the fridge to kind of keep you going for the week until you hit that point where you need more groceries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, do you find that there's any difference between what you purchase in the States and what you would get in Canada in terms of like the quality of the ingredients or the quality of the products, um, how long they last, that, that type of thing? Is it, or is it essentially like the same stuff that you're getting in Canada? I personally find the meat down there is really good. I don't know if it's because I'm in Montana 
and Montana is kind of has that higher standard of like when you you know you always hear about Alberta beef. Yeah. Alberta meat and that, and Montana is known for their cattle ranchers and that. I find their meat to be excellent, and I also quite enjoy the dairy, the cheese seems to be... All, all things that cost a lot and uh, are yeah. known for being cheaper there, right? Yes. <laughs> okay, one of the questions that I think that um, a lot of people have is, like, do you ever... What, like, what's it like at the border? I mean... W- I think we all kind of know that you're allowed to bring a lot of stuff back, but I also think a lot of people have um, maybe some confusion about some of the things that you are. Like, are you allowed to bring fruit? Are you allowed to bring, like, nuts? Uh, th- I know that there's some stuff that you're not supposed to bring back. What has your experience been like with that? Do you get, like, searched at the border? Do they ask you lots of questions? Talk about that for a bit. I haven't been searched in years. I've been just random search where your kind of number comes up for the day, but I haven't been searched because of what I've been bringing over in years. Okay. Ha- tend to yeah, go, go ahead, please. When I come back over and I tell them that I've gone for groceries, they don't tend to go into detail and ask, like, do you have meat? Do you have fruit? There was when there was avian flu, they would ask if you had any poultry products because you weren't allowed to have those. But other than that, they don't ask. And I've gone on and checked all my regulations for my area. I've actually called the border and asked them, like, am I allowed meat? Yes, you're allowed up to 20 kilograms of meat. So I don't get a lot of questions. It's mostly I went for groceries. They ask uh, how much the total is if I have alcohol. And then I'm usually right through the border. Wow. And so have you ever, like, ever had to go in and pay extra, like, pay extra duty or had to, like, leave anything behind? Has that ever happened in your whole time doing this? It has not. Wow. (laughs) I'm not sure if I've just lucked out or if they've just, I guess it's kind of up to the border guard from here as well. Kind of pick and choose. But, no, I've lucked out big time and not had to go in and pay anything, which if if I did, it's not a large amount. Like people tend to think like, well, you spent, you know, $150 and you're going to have to go in and pay $150. It would likely be like 30 to $40 on top of that, which would still put me in the area of savings. You're still way ahead. Yeah. After all these years, that's yeah. incredible. <laughs> so maybe why do you think other people aren't doing this as much. Like I remember back in the nineties, we used to go across the border for gas and a few things all the time. There was so much savings there. And now it's like, uh, obviously as, as you can attest to, there is a ton of savings still, but it seems like people just aren't doing this anymore. Can you speak to why, you know, it doesn't seem like more people are, are taking advantage of this. I think because our dollar is not in a great place. People automatically think that, oh, it's so bad that there is no way you can save money. I think there's a lot of fear about what you can and can't bring back in the border crossing. People are nervous that they're going to go down and come back and have stuff they're not supposed to or be hauled in and have to pay money. That's Brandy Dustin, and she does all her grocery shopping 
south of the border. Three hundred bucks a month. I mean, I think there's, I think there's I, something to, to, there's something there, Simmy. Come on. I don't know, Scott. I disagree. I disagree. Three hundred dollars a month. Well, listen. One on the one hand, like there's a lot of stuff that I feel it's important to buy local for stuff. You got to support local industry, and also it depends on what you're buying. Like, sure, a few things are going to be cheaper there, but it really does depend on what your groceries are. Uh, I, I don't think. know. Three hundred. That's I'm pretty highly tempting skeptical. to me. I'm pretty tempted. I might try it. I'm skeptical. That's a lot of meat too. So I don't know. <laughs> I, I have. I have. I'm so skeptical about that. But okay. thank you, you for it. that. If people want to weigh in as well, maybe you're skeptical like me. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. As if we all need one more thing to worry about. Now, apparently, I also have to worry about my car being hacked. But this I kind of get. About a year ago, I got a new car. And my old one was more than 10 years old. And the difference, technology-wise, was night and day. This new car wants to do way too much for me. And I've, I've actually, over the past year, found it quite disconcerting sometimes about how, you know what, calm down car. I don't need you to do all these things for me. The same things though that make these new cars more convenient, more responsive, also make us more vulnerable to being hacked. To talk to us more about this now, we're joined by Robert Falzon, who's the head of engineering for Checkpoint Software and a cybersecurity expert. Robert, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really tired of my car constantly telling me what to do, Robert. Um, all these cars these days seem to be very intuitive, don't they? Well, they're telling you what to do because they know so much about you. That's the fact. <laughs> okay. How is that a bad thing then? Well, I, I think it can be. Uh, it could be a good thing, obviously, if used properly and if we're properly securing it and caring about it. I think it could be a pretty cool thing, right? It certainly allowed us for some extremely um, major improvements in security. Uh, these are these are all good things, obviously, but it comes with some risk, obviously. I think we need to manage that risk a little bit better. And I think shows like this that are going to help consumers understand a little bit better about what's happening in their vehicle will really go a long way to, to educate folks on that. Okay, so what is happening in my vehicle? Well, your vehicle collects a lot of information about you uh, via telemetry, right? So these, these cars are trying to become more and more efficient. So they're collecting everything about where you're going, you know, the altitude that you're at, how much fuel you're using or electricity, uh, all sorts of different things. And they use that information to try to improve the efficiency of the vehicle to save you money, obviously, and to, to improve the overall experience. The problem is some of that data can be leaked and some of those systems that are being used to collect that information are actually vulnerable to uh, many different ways to, to get into them. And that's, I think, what we need to talk a little bit more about is how we can prevent those things from happening and what sort of real risks there are for consumers. Okay, let's start with the real risks. What could happen? So remember, these vehicles today are really just like rolling software platforms, right? They're, they're, com- they're rolling computers, uh, essentially, and all of the systems, like everything from airbag control and body modules, braking systems, all those things are integrated. So as a result of that, anybody, any hacker who gains access to those systems could potentially control those systems and use them in a way that you know would be unexpected. For example, like causing the vehicle doors to lock and accelerate the vehicle or um, you know set off the airbag or change something to do with the powertrain or transmission. These can actually be very physically damaging things to the vehicle. But there's also the other side of it, which is the software side where we have all this data leaking, right? For example, many apps uh, or many manufacturers are using applications to access the vehicle, to start it remotely, uh, to gather information about your musical preferences and things like that. Those applications themselves usually reside on your cell phone or your computer, and there are vulnerabilities there as well. 
right? So we need to be cautious about how much we're integrating these systems and whether or not we're properly uh, uh, managing the security side of that equation. Okay, first of all, I think people are super eager to do all this. They just, you know, we think it's really cool. We're like, look at this new technology. I can unlock yeah. my car with my phone. How great is that? Sure, sure. And and they are, again, that's a tremendous convenience, right? I mean, I, I enjoy the, the convenience of, uh, you know, in a cold Calgary morning, for example, in the middle of winter, it's great to start the car and have it warmed up. But we, for example, um, you know, manufacturers might put in something like multi-factor authentication. This is when you get a text message uh, confirming that you tried to log in. They're using these things on the applications for the vehicles as well, but many consumers aren't aware that they need to turn that on. Simply turning something like that on will, you know, will prevent one major way of access into your personal data and perhaps even uh, prevent somebody from hacking into your car. And are people properly updating their software? Because we're bad at that in general, I think. Yeah, so that's that's a very important one. I'm glad you mentioned that. We, you know, manufacturers will regularly release updates for the vehicles. And the consumer, it's up to the consumer actually to make sure that A, they allow that update to happen. For example, um, you know, I have a, a Tesla in my family and it will regularly let me know that there's an update available, but it won't push it unless I tell it to or unless I allow it to. So allowing those updates to happen on a regular basis will allow the manufacturer to keep your vehicle updated and keep that firmware uh, and so forth. Um, you know, any new bug fixes or security fixes will be implemented for your vehicle. That's important. And the same thing with the apps on your phone. Make sure any app that's connected to your car is updated and on a regular basis and make sure you check for that. So when I got my new car a year ago, I had to go through that whole, you know, the where they introduce you to it, all the things your car can do. And sure. I got so overwhelmed at that point, Robert, <laughs> that I yeah, asked them, how lot. do I, how do I make this not happen? And they said, if you don't want any of this, then just turn Bluetooth off on your phone. So that's yeah. what I do. So that's what I do because oh. like, it feels like a lot of stuff. Yeah, and to be fair, uh, many of these vehicles now um, will actually be communicating uh, via software back end, right? So they'll be talking to the manufacturer on the back end, even if you turn Bluetooth off, right? So, because again, the manufacturers are looking to um, to commoditize many of these services. They want you to do, they want to, in the future, you're going to see more uh, testing of the market for things like paying for heated seats or paying to unlock your car oh, remotely. Don't even get like me that. started on that. A subscription oh, yeah. for heated seats. I've started hearing about this, how some like BMW is doing this, and this just is ridiculous to me. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan myself, but you know, I, Again, it's the further commoditization of these services. So once you know, manufacturers are doing this, you can imagine that they're going to need access to that vehicle whether or not you want them to. So in, this is where we sort of see a place for regulation to kind of catch up to the market as well. And I suspect we're going to see some legislation like we have in Europe. Uh, which is you know, going to further increase consumer protection and make sure that our personal data is not at risk. Because remember, if it's the car is communicating without your knowledge or control or consent, um, that data is being gathered. You don't know what happens to it after it leaves your car. So we need to get better on that front as well. Okay, so then Robert, break it down for us. What are the, the, really the best ways for us to protect ourselves? Well, there's a few things. So there's the physical aspect of it. So, you know, don't, don't connect to, to public Wi-Fi. If you're sitting at a charging station, uh, you know, try not to connect to a public Wi-Fi. That's a, generally a, a place where we see a lot of uh, misuse. Um, if you're at home, uh, we see a lot of uh, news articles about cars being stolen out of your driveway. Just keep your key fobs in a tin can. 
uh, or keep them not near the vehicle. You can even buy something called a Faraday bag. It's just a little pouch. You can keep uh, your key car keys in, uh, in, a, in a little pouch in the drawer, and it'll block the signal so they can't steal it. Uh, make sure to keep your apps up to date. Make sure that you're using uh, more complex passwords and you don't use the same passwords for every application you have on your phone. Uh, use MFA, multi-factor, if you can, uh, if the manufacturer allows it. You mentioned before, keep the software up to date. And just be careful. If you have an electric vehicle, for example, and you're using charging station infrastructure, just make sure that that charging station is from a legit vendor, right? So, you know, there's some, you know, generally accepted vendors. You'll see them if you go to a Canadian Tire. There'll be a charging station there. That's generally a safe uh, bet. But, you know, some of the times you'll see these charging stations set up in the parking lot of a shopping mall or something like that. Just be a little bit more cautious and make sure that that charging station looks legit. Um, because they're also uh, a method for hackers to get into your car. Huh, okay. Are car manufacturers taking this seriously? They are, actually. And, and again, the, the automotive industry is sort of in a transitional phase, as you can, you can probably imagine. Um, technology is moving, moving very, very rapidly. And, of course, they want to take advantage of these technology advancements for profit. And in order to do so, sometimes uh, security is not the primary consideration. I think we, you know, manufacturers need to do uh, similar systems, sort of like Tesla's done, where they have a bug bounty program. Right. So if you if a security researcher, an average Joe, uh, finds a bug in their Tesla vehicle, they can report it and actually get paid by Tesla uh, for reporting that bug rather than selling it to somebody to exploit. So manufacturers have a role to play in, in improving their overall system design um, and building security right into the software as they go. And I think that's going to be, um, again, a game changer when we start moving forward. Because remember, these systems aren't just running our vehicles for consumers. Right. They're also now going to be implementing in trains and ships and fleet vehicles and deliveries and things like that. So this is a really much, much bigger um, uh, challenge, I think, than most people realize. All right, Robert, thanks for pointing it out to us this morning. Thank you so much. That's Robert Falzon, who's the head of engineering for Checkpoint Software and Cybersecurity Expert, talking about our cars and how they are the thing we have to worry about in terms of cybersecurity these days. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's talk about your work day, your work hours. Some people, like myself, like to cram all the work into a condensed period of time and then, you know, maybe go home early so you're not working the full long day, right? I tend to think that's good for work-life balance. Others like to work an hour and a half, two hours, maybe take 10 or 15 minutes, go for a walk, have a coffee break, and like pass the day like that. Now, one of those is actually shown to be better than the other. And it turns out I am in the wrong on this one. I know, I was actually really surprised by this too. So joining us now to talk about that is Catherine Coons, who's a National Senior Manager of Workplace Mental Health at the Canadian Mental Health Association. Catherine, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So what kind of a workday is best for work-life balance and just your mental health? You know, I, it definitely depends on the person, on the industry, on, on the organization and the tasks that you do. Um, but, you know, your work is a marathon, not a sprint. So, you know, sometimes we do have that mentality, like you said, if I can just power through, end my day, maybe half an hour earlier, I'll be able to kind of relax a bit more. But the research shows that a more um, sustainable approach to working with breaks integrated throughout the day makes us more productive and has a better impact on our mental health and actually allows us to recover throughout the day as opposed to kind of just powering through and then waiting for that recovery at the end of the day. 
Okay, so what would it? What does the ideal situation look like in order for us to have a, a good mentally healthy day? You know, it's it's sometimes for, for most people, it's about an hour to an hour and a half of work, and then ten to fifteen minute breaks. That and that break is important to spend time recovering things not related to your work. If you can, be off your phone, um, getting up and moving as, as, as you know, most ex- as, as accessible as it can be for yourself, doing something different to allow you to recharge momentarily and then come back to your work day. So about, you know, an hour, an hour, an hour and a half of work and then a 10 to 15 minute break in between. Okay. That sounds like frequent breaks to me. How do managers, how do bosses think? What do they think about this, Catherine? There's been a shift in, in, in how we look at uh, workplace mental health. And I think a lot of leadership is, is understanding that healthier and happier uh, employees who take care of their mental health throughout the workday are more productive. So there is a, that, that, that kind of culture of, you know, just power through, even from leadership and managers, is shifting. Um, there's, a, there's a way to go for sure. But, um, you know, employees who take breaks are better employees. They're more productive. They're more creative. Um, we see that in the research and we see that in the workplace as well. It's interesting because didn't we hear this a lot when during the pandemic people could work from home that for some people it allowed them to relax more, maybe take those breaks that they didn't take in the office? Absolutely. You know, I think that, that, that the pandemic has really shifted the way that we look at work, the way we spend our time, the way we prioritize our time. Um, and for folks who are able to kind of work from home during the pandemic, um, that was definitely something that, you know, was, was kind of realized as being able to kind of disconnect in a different way than if you were um, maybe in the office Monday to Friday. So what kind of activities? And you mentioned not looking at your phone, not just sitting there and scrolling, you know, through whatever Instagram. What works, though? And again, it's, it's different things for different people. And I think it's, it's just trying out different things. It can be reading a book. It can be doing, you know, a walk around the block. It depends on, on what's accessible to you. But ultimately, things that allow you to recover. So sometimes it can be even just getting up and stretching for a couple of minutes, um, you know, reading a couple of chapters from your book, maybe connecting with um, your colleagues in a social way, something that's just different and allows you to kind of recover some people, you know, like that kind of more Zen recovery time. So maybe some meditation or just some quiet time. Some people actually feel more energized if they're moving. So even doing a 15 minute, you know, workout or something like that. Um, it depends on what, you, you know, what time of day it is, what you need in your in your kind of energy levels. Um, but just something that, you know, makes you feel good in, in whatever form that might be. Okay. And so how can managers and bosses help with this? I think it, it starts at the top in, in, in um, you know, uh, leading and, and uh, modeling that behavior. If we see our managers and our leaders modeling that behavior and, and taking breaks themselves, that has the biggest impact on employees also doing that as well. Um, as organizations, there's loads of programs out there that, you know, help employee mental health. We have programs at CMHA National called Not Myself Today, Workplace Trainings. You know, managers have a, a, a big responsibility when it comes to taking care of employee mental health. Um, it can be as simple as, you know, starting the conversation, making people feel like it's okay to bring their whole self to work, talking about mental health regularly, not only when somebody is in crisis, just normalizing the conversation and, and starting small. It doesn't have to be these huge, 
um, you know, revamps to our, our organizational structure or benefits plans. It's starting small and normalizing that it's okay not to be okay and it's okay to take breaks. And actually, we're better employees if we take breaks. So a simple kind of easy way to start is for leaders and, and managers to model that, lead by example, and your employees will likely follow as well. Oh, that's that's so tough, though, isn't it, Catherine? Because that requires a total mind shift between people in their careers, thinking they have to look busy, they have to be busy, that you can't look like you're taking a few minutes at work? I think it depends on, on the organization, on the industry. I think that that attitude is definitely changing. There's loads of research coming out around the benefits for the organization, even on the bottom line, on taking care of your mental health. You know, if we don't take care of our mental health, our employees will be burnt out and will cost the organization in the long run, um, you know, in disability claims and things like that. So definitely there's a long way to go in, in shifting those attitudes, but it starts with a conversation and, and talking about it in the workplace. If, if, you know, if you're feeling like that pressure is there in your organization and in your industry to kind of always be busy and, and not take the break, then it does start with a simple conversation around what are the benefits to my to my individual health, to my you know organizational health, to our productivity, to our bottom line. And there's loads of resources out there that can help start that conversation and facilitate that and, and look to the research. And, um, you know, I am, I am hopeful that that attitude is changing. Of course, it's, it's slower in, in some places than others, but um, it does just start with being open to that, that conversation and, and, you know, changing those attitudes. Okay, so let's be absolutely clear then here, Catherine. What is the, what is the situation that most workers would benefit the most from in terms of how long should you work before taking a break? It's going to depend on the person. I would say at an hour mark, check in with yourself and see how you're feeling. And if now is the right time to take a break, then let's say take a 10 minute break, you know, every hour or an hour and a half. Um, You don't want to take a break when it doesn't feel right. So if you're in the middle of something, give yourself that 15 minutes to finish up um, and then go for your break then. But after like a period of kind of intense concentration, go for a walk, stretch your legs, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. We'll see what people think about that. Catherine, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. That's Catherine Coons, the National Senior Manager of Workplace Mental Health at the Canadian Mental Health Association. Now, I don't know how many people actually do this because, you know, you sometimes feel like, oh, is that going to make me look like I'm not working? And do you have a boss that would be understanding of doing this? That you work for an intent, like you work intensely for an hour, hour and a half, and then you get up for 10 minutes, take a break, stretch your legs, get a coffee, whatever it is that you need to do, or take essentially an extended break. Pace yourself is what they're suggesting. But I don't know. I, I'm of the power through variety. And I don't know. I certainly can't, not with this job, uh, do the take a break every hour or so for 10, 15 minutes and see how it goes. But could you? Is that something that works for you? Or are you more of the preference of, I just want to get all my work done and get out of here? Would your boss even understand if you wanted to take more frequent breaks, perhaps? Let me know. Simi at cknw.com. You can also call or text our buzz line 604 331 